0: Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray as we engage with it now, you might give us great understanding and wisdom to know what it's about and help us understand what it is that you map out history, that you are the king. we pray that we might live in response to that as humble and obedient servants and that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. We've come from all over the place, come for this great occasion or some of us just come to church today because that's a great place to be but we come with different kind of mindsets and outlooks and I want to ask you a question, do you believe, do you believe that God is alive and well, that he's the king and that the future is in his hands? Do you believe he's alive and well? He's the king, and the future is in his hands. Uh, today, we're beginning on the final vision of the prophet Daniel. Uh, We've been working through the book of Daniel the last few months, and uh, there's all the famous bits like Daniel and the lion's den and so on, but there's got these weird visions at the end. This is the fourth and final vision. Uh, It involves wars and intrigues. It ends with the arrival of the mighty archangel who, who raises the dead, which is in the next chapter we'll come to next week, and it's an incredibly detailed vision Uh, very specific information about these wars and intrigues, particularly about these kings of the north and these kings of the south and so on. In fact, the details it gives are so detailed and so specific that many have taken these chapters as one of the absolute proofs of the truth of Christianity and the Bible. For these words written around 530 BC predict with incredible accuracy events which would take place over the next... 400 years or so, up to the 160s BC. Uh, Indeed, Sir Isaac Newton, who's famous for being a mathematician and scientist, physicist, he uh, wrote of the final chapters of Daniel, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone made five centuries before Jesus Christ. I don't know if you knew that Sir Isaac Newton was a Bible-believing Christian, a convert, and one of the greatest minds of all time saw this and went, God has to be true. Because look what he predicted. The kings and queens are identifiable. The years of the events are dateable. And I don't know if you walked into church a believer or a sceptic or somewhere in between. But here is a challenge to us that God knows what he's about. He really does know this world and its future. And that his claim on our lives is very, very real. Now we're told in chapter 10 and verse 1 that this vision is a message about a great war. This great war that will unfold, a war essentially between two mighty nations, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, and it lasts many generations of kings and queens of those nations. But before we come to that war itself and the vision, Daniel spends a whole lot of time telling us what was happening when he had this vision and who gave it. Uh, And that's chapter 10, essentially. It's just a sort of build-up to it. Chapter 10 and verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. And you think, okay, who cares what year it happened in? What's so significant about that year, the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia? Well, several things. It was two years after the 70th anniversary of Israel's captivity and slavery in Babylon and now in Persia. And it was also two years from the date of Daniel's retirement from public office as the Prime Minister of uh, the Babylonian Empire. And in the year of his retirement, a couple of years before, he'd been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And Daniel was very much aware that Jeremiah had prophesied the captivity of Israel by Babylon would only last for 70 years. 70 years and it will be done and you can go home. And so Jeremiah 29 verse 10. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you. And it had been 70 years and so he began to realize at the time, if God is true, the time has come for his promise to be fulfilled and for us to go home. And so in chapter 9 of Daniel, Daniel started to pray and he began to confess his sins. And he asked God to fulfill the promise that Jeremiah made, that the 70 years would be it for Israel's punishment and the people could return to their land. And that was in the first year of King Cyrus's reign. And as we find out elsewhere in the Bible, that year Daniel's prayer to God was answered. Jeremiah's prophecy came true. In Ezra chapter 1 we read, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing, Anyone of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And so Daniel's prayer answered, Jeremiah's prophecy fulfilled the very year that Daniel prayed. But we come to chapter 10 and what's the first statement? In the third year of Cyrus... Where are we now? When are we now? We're two years on and we're still in Babylon. Yeah, the order has been made that they can go back, and some people have, but a very disheartening and very discouraging reality has occurred. The people hadn't all gone back. In fact, most of them were still hanging around, they were comfortable. They were sufficiently used to living as captives in Babylon. They'd become enmeshed in the society. They'd been, you know, Most of them had jobs and had made an income and set up homes. They'd married and had children and they'd become enmeshed in the society in which they now lived. They'd prospered and they'd become absorbed and they were too involved to care about, going back to that dusty old country in the Promised Land, too involved to care about rebuilding Jerusalem and too involved to care about restoring God's temple. Now, some did go back, Uh, just a few. Ezra tells us that 42,000 went back, which sounds a lot, but it was only a drop in the bucket. And the few that did go back, they hadn't been able to reestablish the kingdom. They were still in slavery to Persia. Uh, By this time, they still hadn't started work on the city walls or on the temple. And when they did eventually start to rebuild, they were opposed and harassed and mocked and scorned. And finally, the work on both those came to a halt altogether. And Daniel's retired. He's about 85 years old now. He started the book as a very young guy, you know, teenager. Um, now he's too old to go home and he's frustrated with the failure of his people to return and start again. And so as the chapter starts, he's in mourning. He's grieving. Verse two, at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river the Tigris, this vision happened. Now he's really specific about the date that it happened, that he had this amazing vision of a great war. Why? Well, who cares whether it was the 24th or the 28th or which month? or? Why then? Because it's a week and a half after Passover, which occurs on the 14th, of the first month of the Jewish calendar of a year, and that's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which runs from the fifteenth to the twenty-second. So he's been in mourning through all these incredible feasts, which were supposed to be a joyful celebration, celebrating Israel's release from captivity as slaves in Egypt hundreds of years before. You know, these celebrations that God rescues, that He saves, celebrating that rescue. But here they are, still in captivity, after the promise for their new return is supposed to have come. And so he's grieving, he's mourning. And all all this time through his mourning, heaven has been silent. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Daniel, Daniel's not used to that. Every single time that Daniel has prayed before this, God has either rescued him, like in the lion's den, or come to him... Or giving him a vision that very same day or giving him the answer to the problem that he's faced. And so he's down by the river Tigris, pouring out his heart to God for three weeks and heaven is silent. When all of a sudden, verse 5, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold round his waist. His body was like chrysolite. His his face was lightning. His Eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I don't know if you can imagine grieving, being sitting down by a river. And all of a sudden this creature, this thing, appears. And it's a pretty shocking thing for him to see. Now some suggest it's a, an angel, maybe it's an archangel like Gabriel or Michael. who have come up before in in the book. But if we've got our Bible reading glasses, I would suggest that this is none other than Jesus Christ himself, the second member of the Trinity, hundreds of years before his incarnation and birth. This is an appearance in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ, what people with PhDs call a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, The description here of this creature, this person, Is almost identical to what uh, the apostle John sees in Revelation chapter one and verse twelve, where where John says, "I turned to see a voice that spoke to me. Uh, Being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a garment to the foot, girded about the breast with a golden girdle. His hair, his head and his hair were white." As wool and white as snow, his eyes were like flames of fire, his feet burned like fine bronze, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Almost identical, except for the white hair. And so here in Daniel's morning, Jesus, if it is him, appears in all the blazing glory of God. And just as when the other prophets of old met God in his blazing glory, What happens? No one's a happy camper. Uh, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. That's what happens when you meet God in His glory. It's not, "Hey, buddy, good to see ya. Yeah, here's your father. Crack out the beers. We're mates." It's overwhelming when you meet God face to face. He goes deathly white and his strength is gone and all the other blokes have racked off in abject terror. And yet Jesus doesn't destroy him. Indeed, down in verse 11, he reassures Daniel that he's come not to destroy him. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I've now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling and then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. Three weeks of silence, three weeks of mourning, now an answer comes and the answer is not what he's expecting or hoping for. Verse 14, I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And as chapter 10 winds up, Daniel's told this future concerns the end of the Persian Empire and the rise and fall of Greece. That's uh, verse 20. And that's what chapter 11 describes in incredible detail, the rise and fall of Greece. Events covering 530 BC through to 163 BC. From the succession of Cyrus's son Cambyses, to the terrible events which happened in the 160s BC in Israel. And it's all told in terms of this, this great war. And I've given you a handout here, um, which you, you've got when you came in. It's got a map on one side, which is the sort of the breakup of the uh, Greek Empire. And on the other side, there's a timeline. And you can go away and read through the details and, and, and see how the different verses, which are on the left, of, of this prediction match up with, who, what, where? As it goes along, I'm just—I'm just going to run through a few of them just to show you uh, how it all pans out. And I want to focus on a few of the kings that are in here. King one, King Xerxes. Who's heard of King Xerxes? Who's seen the movie 300 or oh, read the book? Now, there you go. That guy, although without the magic. <laughs> Verse 2, chapter 11. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth. Fourth king from thing on, Xerxes. He'll be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he'll stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Three kings and a fourth. Turns out to be king Xerxes the uh, first. He's not mentioned by name in this prediction, but he's mentioned in the book of Esther. He was the one... He, He was uh, one of the greatest Middle Eastern rulers of all time. Fabulous wealth, commanded the largest army in the ancient world, uh, largest army in ancient history. And he decided that the Persian Empire was missing a bit. Greece, we're going to go and collect that too. And so in he went with his massive army. Yet it didn't quite go out of plan. The fleet got held up and then his entire infantry were held up by... A small band of people. Anyone know who? 300 Spartans at Hell's Gates or whatever it is. The, uh, Thermopylae, The Battle of Thermopylae where 300 Spartan soldiers held off the biggest army ever put together because it was a narrow pass. For a week they held them up. Eventually they did bust through, but it gave them enough time for the Greeks to prepare some of their defences. Uh, the army swept through and they burnt Athens to the ground, but the invasion came to a grinding hold at Corinth, uh, and a year later the Greeks raised an army of hoplites and drove the Persians right out of Europe. They weren't strong enough to invade Persia itself, but the Greeks never forgot about it. After that, 150 years went by and finally the Greeks got their act together and they decided they wanted to retaliate for what had happened. And when they came, they were led by Alexander the Great. And he's the second king who's highlighted in Daniel 11, verse 3. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. A mighty king, none other than Alexander the Great of Greece. All the Bible commentators agree that this is who's in mind. He... He retaliated for what had happened earlier. He seized the entire Persian Empire and more. Uh, By the age of 33, he conquered the world. His army couldn't go any further because they hit the the seas on the far side of India and went, ah, and they burst into tears and said there are no more worlds to conquer. They didn't know about Australia, but... uh, (laughs) They were literally worn out. They conquered everything from Europe to India and he changed the course of history more than any other ruler and as it says in verse 3, he did whatever he pleased. He was an absolute monarch. He had not only the power of personality and the power of leadership but he had the power of military might. But he died at 33, got wounded on the way home and died. And what happened? Verse 4, 200 years before it happened, this is what happened. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And it seems that no sooner does Alexander the Great stand up and get his kingdom than it's shattered and divided. Now, this, remember, this is 200 years before he's even born. But that's exactly what happened. His kingdom fractured after his death and none of his family inherited it. Uh, Alexander had a half-brother who was mentally retarded. He had an illegitimate son and he had another son who was born uh, after his death. All three were murdered so they could not inherit his kingdom. And the generals all went to war with each other and out of it all came four different kingdoms, four main parts, which are on the map. That's the, the breakup of Greece... Right after Alexander the Great, uh, Cassandra took Macedonia. Lysimachus took Thrace and Asia Minor. And then there's two names I want you to remember Ptolemy, who uh, took Egypt, that's the blue section under the blue sea, which is a bad colour anyway. And Seleucus, remember that name, took Syria, the big yellow section. Now, note, where is Egypt in relation to Israel? Israel's at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Where's Egypt in relation? It's south, south and a bit to the west. Where is the yellow bit in comparison to Israel? Syria. It's north, north of Israel. And those two become the focus of the remainder of the chapter because they surround the nation of Israel. And in Egypt, the 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 dynasty of the Ptolemies was established, which included, amongst other people, Cleopatra. She was a Ptolemy. Uh, She gets a mention in verse 17. And in Syria, it was the Seleucid dynasty. And through the centuries, these two warring dynasties uh, fought and fought and fought, and most of their battles and wars were over the soil of Israel, where the battleground still is today, From here to verse 20, it covers about 200 years when these wars waged on the borders and through the land of Israel. And it's all about the different kings of the north and the kings of the south, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And you can put a name to each of the characters who turns up. Uh, Just to give you some examples, uh, Antiochus Theos, Uh, Theos, he gave himself, that name means God, he had a bit of a God complex. He in the north, uh, Seleucid. Uh, He wanted to make a treaty with the Ptolemies down in Egypt, so he married the daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the king of the south, who was a woman named Berenice. Uh, Unfortunately, he was already married, uh, and so he divorced wife number one, who wasn't real thrilled about it. Uh, So she murdered Berenice and all her attendants, and then she poisoned her ex-husband to death, uh, which is what verse 6 says will happen. This brought Callinicus to the throne in the north uh, who was defeated in battle by Berenice's brother who then stole the treasures of Syria and took them down to Egypt. Look at verse 7. One from her family line will rise to take a place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He'll fight against them and be victorious. He'll also seize their gods, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. Now, history tells us that uh, he took... 40,000 talents of silver. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Two and a half thousand idol statues he stole. Can you see how accurate the word of God is here? But the point behind it all is that in the middle of this great war between the north and the south is, is Israel. The battlefield would always be over Daniel's home, over the promised land. And on and on and on it goes. Fascinating details which you want to read about it in full. I've put a link at the bottom of that timeline. You can go and look it up and it's got a really interesting story uh, and figure out who all the different people are and which verse they turn up in. All mapped out in Daniel's vision hundreds of years before it happened. Now, he didn't know any of the names, of course. He simply told the king of the north will do this, king of the south will do this, then this will happen. And the great war that's fought over... Israel. That's the battleground. That is until the last king who takes up the majority of the chapter, verse 21, to the end. He's the focus of all this. Who, as it turns out, is a guy called Antioch, he's Epiphanes, a guy with another God complex. His self-styled title, Epiphanes, means the appearance of God. You know, I am the appearance of God. Pleased to meet you. Uh, <laughs> Verse 21, he will be, uh, the, the guy before him will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honour of royalty. He'll invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he'll seize it through intrigue. A contemptible man, he had no right to reign. He deceived and flattered and bribed his way into power. But when he gained power, he wielded it with great ferocity. And his reign as king is a tale of intrigue, backstabbing, greed and violence. He would come up to all his enemies with um, flattery and bribery and... Hey, buddy, how you going? Just as he stuck the knife in. Uh, and so he killed off a lot of his enemies. Uh, he backstabbed them, conquered their lands. But it's all leading up to verse 30. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he'll lose heart. He'll turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant, that is against Israel. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the holy covenant. So he, he'll... um. He's going to be really kind to those Jews who betray the Jewish people and they're they're going to be on his team. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they'll set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he'll corrupt those who violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they'll fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they'll receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so they'll be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He'll exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll say unheard of things against the god of gods. He'll be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Now all that happened in and around the 160s BC. Antiochus Epiphanes he went to town on Israel. He got tired of the war. He wasn't doing too well with uh, the south, and and he went to town on the people of God. First thing he did is he put guards all around the temple so that no one could go in there to worship. He stopped the temple sacrifices. He halted all the prayers. Then one Sabbath, he sent his soldiers into the city uh, to slaughter any child you find. And so in they went they just killed all the kids. And he said, "Eh, do the women too. So they killed off a whole bunch of the women. Then he made heathen idolatry mandatory. He then walked into the temple of God and set up a statue to Zeus. Then he had a pig uh, slain on the altar, which is an abomination if you know the Jewish law at all. You know, pigs, no go. You can't eat bacon in Judaism. And he has the pig's blood spread all around the temple and he makes the priests eat the pork. And so they're cut off from God, you know, in their religious eyes. This is the abomination of desolations. This, this is the desecration of the temple. And See, what Jesus is saying to Daniel in all this, Daniel, if you think that 70 years is the end of all your troubles, it's not over, not by a long shot. Yes, the order has come from the king to go home and some of your people have gone home and a temple will be reconstructed. But your home is going to be the pawn and the battlefield of nations who are going to rob it blind, they're going to use it for their schemes, they're going to fight over it, blood will be spilled and God's name will be slandered, his temple will be defied and it will get worse and worse. It's going to be horrible. That's the message here for Daniel. But Daniel, just so you know, God has ordained it all. The flow, the sequence, the intimate, minute, tiny little details. God's people, Daniel's people will go on suffering. God has not finished the purging process yet on his people. So here's Daniel sitting by the river in despair in mourning, begging, begging God, fix it all up now. You promise fix it now. Just like we may beg God to fix everything now. We want it all done. We don't want to face any difficulty. But God's message to Daniel is that it will get far worse and it will take hundreds of years to happen through the rise and fall of many kings and then the suffering is going to reach a pinnacle under one who will be the worst blasphemer of all. But look at the end of the chapter, the last sentence. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Even this worst enemy of God will come to his end alone, friendless. He will meet his doom. And then more, chapter 12, which we come to next week. The judgment day will happen. When Antiochus Epiphanes and all his ilk will face the divine wrath of God. See, God will win. You cannot oppose God and survive. Yes, the powerful do thrive for a time. Yes, they may well spit in God's face and do terrible, wicked things. Yes, they will show contempt for the poor and the weak. Yes, they may persecute God's people and destroy even God's people. It may look like they will triumph and that trusting God is a complete waste of time. But they will all come to their end. God will bring each and every one down. He has set a time. He knows when it will happen. It is planned. And that goes for all who will ignore God and seek to set themselves up as their own little God and ignore and despise the great and true God of heaven. You may prosper in this life, living without him. You may make it in the world even if you couldn't care less about Jesus. But the day of our death is set and the day of judgment is set. He has the time set. He knows when it will happen. It has all been planned. And the only hope that your eye may have is to fly in humility to God, to beg for his mercy and humbly accept that there is a future which we may have by which we might flourish forever forever. But that's in Daniel chapter 12, so I can't talk about it now. You'll have to come back next week. There you go. Just in case you don't, it's all about Jesus. The one who gave this message to Daniel, the one who has now come in the flesh, the one who has defeated sin, death, and even the devil himself, not by a conquest of arms, but by his sacrifice on the cross and his rising to new life. He's the one we can and must trust for life, life that goes beyond this life, life that goes beyond the grave the true king, not like the kings of this world who grab for power and make their marks and backstab each other and, but who die and for, forgotten by history. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords and his reign will never end. Father, we thank you for this incredible insight that you gave Daniel into what was the future for him but is the past for us. And we thank you that though there is trouble, that you have not lost control, that you know what you're doing, that the day is set. And so we thank you that you're still in control, that the Lord Jesus has won through his sacrifice on the cross, that he has brought us forgiveness and life if we will trust him and be his. We thank you that the promise of being your person now does not mean ease all the time, but it does mean the sure hope of heaven, a forgiveness of our sins, of life with you forevermore, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray that each one here might be found on that last day as your child. So please bring us all to trust the Lord Jesus, who's the one who wins, who reigns over all. Amen.